Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Um, I'm doing pretty well. I may have accidentally made myself a little depressed doing the research for this episode. Oh no. But, like... Personally speaking, like, I'm good. Things are good with me. You're surviving the polar vortex outside? Oh, yeah. It's been cold this weekend. This will date this episode. Everyone will know when this was, but that's fine. It was cold this weekend, and it got colder as the weekend went on. At the time of recording this, it's, like, minus 25 degrees Celsius, which is around minus 12 Fahrenheit. And that's without the wind chill. Sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little intense outside. But we are inside. Yes. And so all is well. (laughs) Hey, we have a new patron. Yeah, it's Kyle and Dave versus the Machine, which if you're having trouble parsing as a person's name, that's okay because it's the name of a podcast. Listeners in the know might remember when I guested on Kyle and Dave versus the Machine, when um, their machine, uh, which has been making them watch every movie in 1999, had them watch the 1999 The Mummy. The Machine is switching them over to 1972 now, and they brought me onto the show uh, to talk about the fall of the production code in 1968, and the effect that had on American cinema in the very early days of the MPAA rating system when everything was kind of a bit of a Wild West for a while there. Oh, boy. Um, So watch out for when that episode comes out, Creatures of the Night. But in the meantime... A big thank you to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine for joining our Patreon. If you would like to be akin to Kyle, Dave, and The Machine you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching sort of a a reunion for us with some old friends. It's The Black Sleep from 1956, directed by Reginald LeBorg and starring Basil Rathbone, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, and Bella Lugosi, among... A lot of other people. Okay. Just going off of the title, is this like a uh, like a horror version of The Big Sleep with no. Bogart and Bacall? No, not okay. at all. I'm sorry. No. No, this is your standard Victorian mad scientist brain swapping movie. Brain swapping. Um, the black sleep of the title refers to a drug that, you know, does the old... Makes you look like you're dead, but you aren't Uh, trick. We've had many a case of those. Yes. Whether it's from, uh, like, a rare drug or just, like, supremely skilled yoga techniques or whatever. (laughs) So this reunion of old stalwarts began as part of a partnership between independent production company Bel Air Productions and distributor United Artists. Bel Air Productions was founded in 1951 
by producer Aubrey Schenk. And Schenk started in the film industry as a personal assistant to Spiros Skouras, the head of 20th Century Fox. And so one day, Schenk wrote a script and, you know, handed it to his boss like, hey, take a look at this screenplay. And, um, you know, Skouras offered to buy it off of him. Oh, nice. And Schenk was like, no, I would rather produce this movie for you than get paid for writing it. So he did. Baller move. Yeah. So this began Shank's career as a producer. The film was Shock, a film noir starring Vincent Price from 1946. Uh, and it was a mild success. So Shank was able to parlay it and do a career as a movie producer. Shank's Shock. Uh, later in the 1940s, he worked for Eagle Lion. And then when they ended production, he created his own company under a deal with United Artists. The arrangement that they had was that Bel Air would come up with a title, bring that to United Artists, and then based on that title, United Artists would uh, give them a budget and also give them, like, one actor that they had to use. This is an approach. <laughs> and then uh, from that, Bel Air would write the script and shoot the picture. Okay. So in this case, the title was The Black Sleep. Uh, the budget was $225,000. Not and bad. the actor was Basil Rathbone. Okay. What has uh, old Basil been up to lately? Well, I'll tell you, but... Uh, oh, we haven't uh, finished the, the production side of the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Howard Koch uh, produced this film. Uh, he had started as a production assistant at Universal, uh, working his way up to be an assistant director by 1947 a producer by 1953, and also a director by 1954. Wow. Uh, by 1964, so after this, he would be made head of production at Paramount. But that's in, in the future. Yes. For him, this was just another project. Remembering Reginald LeBorg from his days at Universal, he brought the director on board to direct the film, which was shaping up to be sort of a 1940s-style throwback uh, to to this older horror style. Kind of, once they started casting, you know, something of a reunion. Interesting. Like, that makes sense why they would go with LeBorg. But, like, when thinking of a 1950s director who's interested in doing horror throwback, you think of Ed Wood. For sure. And it's it's odd, because this movie is kind of like... Up his alley. It is totally up his alley. It is definitely beyond his normal budgetary limitations. I feel like they were hiring for reliability and past skill rather than enthusiasm. LeBorg, you know, had known Coke from the Universal days. Uh, back then, uh, LeBorg had helmed Calling Dr. Death, uh, Weird Woman, which were both um, Inner Sanctum Mysteries, as well as Jungle Woman and The Mummy's Ghost, which were horror movies, uh, along with a lot of other Universal Studios B-movies. So, LeBorg likely got this movie because he's worked with Coke before. Yeah. Rather than Coke looking for new talent. Yeah, Coke's not looking for new talent. Um, he's looking for someone who can come in and bring this movie, you know, in on schedule, on budget, um, with, you know, competence... Um, but also who had some familiarity with the genre. 
Now, since we last saw Reginald LeBorg, uh, he has spent the late 1940s directing movies based on the comic strip Joe Palooka, and by this point in the 1950s, he was mostly working on television. Okay. LeBorg, once he was brought in, he made changes to this script, which was written by thriller writer John Higgins, who um, is from Winnipeg. Oh, another place in Canada with very, very cold winters. Yes. Um... Primarily, the changes that LeBorg made to the script were adding motivation for Rathbone's mad scientist character, uh, allowing the audience to understand and empathize with his actions. The film was given a 12-day shooting schedule. That's pretty short. Mm -hmm. It would end up going over budget to $235,000. So that's only $10,000 over budget? yeah. That's not too bad. Joining Rathbone would be a whole swath of his old pals from the universal horror days of the 1940s. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, and Bella Lugosi. Peter Lorre was also supposed to be part of the cast, uh, but United Artists wouldn't pay his rate. Um, unlike the other people I just mentioned, Lorre's career was not quite on the same level of decline, um, it was declining to the point where, like, you know, in two years before this, he was playing uh, Le Chiffre in the live TV adaptation of Casino Royale. Um, but it wasn't at a point where he was as cheap to get as these other guys. So he was replaced by Orson Welles' go-to character actor, Akeem Tamaroff. Awesome. So we last saw Rathbone in The Black Cat way back in 1941. Okay. I think since then he's probably done the Sherlock Holmes stuff. Yes. Uh, so Rathbone was born in South Africa in 1892, uh, raised in England. He began acting on stage in 1911 and fought in World War One. He began acting in British silent films in 1921 and American sound pictures in the 1930s. Uh, he primarily played suave villains in films like The Adventures of Robin Hood and The Mark of Zorro. And, of course, he was Wolf von Frankenstein Frankenstein in Son of Frankenstein. <laughs> what is this, young Frankenstein? <laughs> in 1939, he was cast as Sherlock Holmes in The Hound of the Baskervilles, appearing in a total of 14 Sherlock Holmes films from 1939 to 1947. Wow. Uh, as well as a concurrent radio series. So to his dismay, uh, after the Holmes films ended, he was sort of typecast, and he couldn't find much work in Hollywood. In the ten years since the Sherlock Holmes series has ended up to this film, he has appeared in four films, narrating the Wind in the Willows segment of Disney's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in 1949, parodying his swashbuckler villain roles in Casanova's Big Night in 1954, and appearing in two more comedies, We're No Angels and The Court Jester in 1955. Uh, in the meantime, he's primarily returned to stage. That makes sense, especially given that he's British and would be fine returning to that. Sure. Uh, the Black Sleep would be his first serious role on film in 10 years, and he is 64 years old here. 64? Mm-hmm. Akim Tamaroff, the replacement for Peter Lorre, 
was born in 1899 in the Russian Empire to an Armenian family. He trained as an actor in Moscow and moved permanently to America in 1927. Despite his heavy accent, he managed to win supporting roles in Hollywood. He was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar twice, uh, first for The General Died at Dawn in 1936, and then for Whom the Bell Tolls in 1943. I don't remember him in that movie. He's like one of the, like, rebels in the mountains, I think, that, like, Gary Cooper's helping. One of the things that helped Akim Tamaroff in his career as a character actor in Hollywood is that he was a white guy with an accent, uh, which meant for Hollywood he was good enough to be Spanish, Mexican, Arab, German, Russian, whatever. He's foreign. Yeah. So he can play any of the foreign characters. Correct. Uh, He did win the first Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for For Whom the Bell Tolls. His role in the film The Great McGinty inspired the character Boris Badenoff on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Okay. And beginning with the film Mr. Arcotton in 1955, he became a favorite of Orson Welles, appearing in Touch of Evil in 1958, The Trial in 1962, and Welles' unfinished Don Quixote adaptation as Sancho Panza. Uh, He is 57 years old in this film. Okay, so he's not going to be super young. Because, yeah, when I think of this guy, I think of him as he is in Mr. Arcotton. Yeah, this would be two years after that, um, and then a few years before his other Wells films. Lon Chaney Jr., of course, is the son of Lon Chaney Sr., uh, and has been a major horror guy for years at this point, um, frequently appearing in films because he needed to. And name value. Yes. Um, His most significant role being, of course, Lawrence Talbot, a.k.a. the Wolfman. The last time we saw him was back in 1952's The Black Castle from Universal. By 1952, his career was already pretty far along the downslope, following the canceling of his contract at Universal in 1945 due to his alcoholism. Cheney's problems with depression, alcoholism, uh, other substance abuse, which by the 50s had really done a number on his weight and his looks. Um, These had all negatively impacted what roles he was offered and what roles he could take. But producer Stanley Kramer, a pretty significant independent producer of the 1950s, uh, took a liking to using Cheney as a character actor, casting him in High Noon in 1952, Not as a Stranger in 1955, and The Defiant Ones uh, in 1958. Kramer said that whenever a role came in that he thought was too difficult for most actors in Hollywood, he called Cheney. That's high praise. Mm-hmm. While not all the roles that Cheney did in this period were as good, he was working regularly. He has appeared in 17 films in the four years since we last saw him in The Black Castle. Good for him. His film just before this one was The Indestructible Man, a crime horror sci-fi thriller picture. (laughs) Just Um, a hodgepodge. Yeah, just a real cheap piece of trash. Um, (laughs) Now, Chaney knew he couldn't be paid well for appearing in The Black Sleep, 
but he wanted to do it for the chance of working again with his old colleagues on what was shaping up to be a real sort of throwback to his glory days, essentially, in terms of the movie's style. Uh, he's 50 years old here. So, so keep that in mind. He is younger than Rathbone, Tamaroff, and Lugosi in this picture. Are you saying that because he's going to look like he isn't? You can be the judge of that. The last time we saw John Carradine was way back in 1946 in The Face of Marble. So the last time we saw him, things were going, like, bonkers off the wall. <laughs> it was also ten years ago. Yes. Uh, since then, Carradine has divorced his second wife and is up to a total of five sons. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. Well, because there's more wives and children to come. Um, between 1949 and 1954, Carradine didn't appear in any films. Uh, he appeared primarily in guest roles on television. He returned to film with the comedy Casanova's Big Night, which also featured Basil Rathbone and Lon Chaney. Uh, it was a, a Bob Hope comedy. He sort of used that as a, like... Get your foot in the door! And in the two years since then, he has appeared in ten movies, resuming his never-say-no-to-anything policy. <laughs> Good for him. On the set of The Black Sleep, he was reportedly often kind of in a world of his own. Uh, he would quote Shakespeare in response to people's conversations and um, be kind of like, just sort of a little weird... Um, but he got along well with the director, uh, LeBorg, because LeBorg knew Hamlet. So the two of them would shoot a day's work and then get drunk and just quote Shakespeare back and forth to each other. <laughs> Carradine is also 50 years old here. Okay. So again, younger than the others, same age as Cheney. The last time we saw Bella Lugosi was in 1955's Bride of the Monster, directed by Ed Wood. Uh, following production of that film, Lugosi checked himself into rehab to finally try to kick his drug addictions to morphine and methadone and Demerol, among other things. Those are all, um, like... Painkillers. Painkillers. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, uh, for some reason, I always think, like, he was addicted to heroin as well. He did probably take heroin, which is also technically speaking, a painkiller, because they're all opioids. Okay. His whole addiction issue stemmed from um, a morphine prescription that he got for war wounds that he just abused, uh, basically. The costs of entering him into a treatment center uh, were paid for by the premier party for Bride of the Monster, which was thrown by Dolores Fuller. Um, but ultimately, this was insufficient to pay for him to stay at the treatment center. Uh, so, luckily, Lugosi had made the decision to make his entering into rehab public. He was the first Hollywood actor to publicly go into rehab for drug addiction. Um, and so, upon learning of Lugosi's situation, uh, Frank Sinatra stepped in and paid Lugosi's bills... Uh, and visited him in the hospital, uh, despite having never met Lugosi before. Wow. Now, while in the hospital, Lugosi started receiving letters from a young fan named Hope Leninger. Oh, I know this story. 
who signed her letters A Dash of Hope. Following his treatment uh, and getting out of treatment, he and Hope were married. So she became his fifth wife. He gave press interviews after getting out of treatment in high spirits, uh, describing his plans for a comeback with Ed Wood projects like The Ghoul Goes West and Dr. Acula. (laughs) That's good. Uh, This was his first film after getting out of rehab. On the set of The Black Sleep, um, a lot of people described Lugosi as sort of being broken, uh, decrepit, uh, depressed often. Um, He would perk up if Hope came to visit the set, um, but otherwise was not doing well. Um, He confided to his co-star in this movie, Tor Johnson, who had also been his co-star in Bride of the Monster, um, that he just wanted to die. Oh, boy. Um, But when press showed up to visit the set, everyone would notice this, like, extreme transformation. He would stand up straight and be about, like, four inches taller uh, his eyes would start beaming. His voice would start booming. He would put the full Count Dracula charisma on display uh, whenever the, the press showed up, or his wife. Lugosi told reporters, quote, I keep telling myself, I must believe I will make the grade again. If I stop believing for even a minute, I find myself sinking into despair. It's fighting this feeling a thing that comes to all former drug addicts that saps my energy. God has been good and has given me this second chance, and I'll do my best not to fail. It's tiring even just getting to the set each day, but everyone is kind and it's good to be working with old friends. But he's also kind of putting on a performance as he does these interviews. Well, unfortunately, to Lugosi's dismay... His role in this film was a non-speaking part. Oh, dang. Now, he tried to prevail on the Borg to give him some lines, but his character's mute condition was tied to the plot of the film. So, the best Laborg could do to placate him was give him more close-ups. Uh, but many of these were cut in the final edit of the movie anyways. Meanwhile, around this same time, uh, Ed Wood shot some silent, impromptu test footage of Lugosi in his Dracula costume at a suburban graveyard, uh, also in front of Tor Johnson's house, also just in front of Lugosi's apartment, uh, with no real storyline in mind, just to get some footage of Lugosi on film. Uh, Lugosi was 73 years old at the time of making this movie, so he's the oldest in the cast here. His co-star, Tor Johnson, who I just mentioned, was a pro wrestler known as the Super Swedish Angel, uh, who had worked with Lugosi and Ed Wood as the monster in the film Bride of the Monster. A big, massive guy. Uh, He was 54 at the time of making this movie. There were other younger people in this movie. They're just not very notable. LeBorg reported that the biggest problem on set was that each of these horror actors kept trying to steal every scene they were in. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Which led to a lot of overacting. 
Uh, so Laborde did his best to try and keep everybody restrained and, and keep everybody's performances maybe, like, just down a few notches until the picture's climax when he let them all off the hook. Awesome. To make the brain surgeries of Rathbone's character convincing, a real neurosurgeon was brought in to serve as a hand model for him in the surgery scenes. The makeups for the victims of the brain surgery were designed by artist Nicholas Volpe, who is best known as a portrait artist for celebrities and, you know, actors, singers, performers of any kind, uh, including as the official portrait artist of each and every Best Picture actor and actress winner at the Academy Awards until his death in 1992. That's cool. The movie also, um, I don't know if there's a lot of blood in it, but there is a scene where there's a brain leaking... um, Juice? Cerebrospinal fluid, uh, which was not something that had ever been seen in a movie before, and they had to have the neurosurgeon describe to them what cerebrospinal fluid looked like so the makeup artist could make some. It just, it's, it's brain juice. <laughs> you just stick a straw into someone's brain and you got yourself a Capri Sun. Well, I've learned something new about you today. <laughs> so United Artists released The Black Sleep on June 27th, 1956 as a double feature with The Creeping Unknown which is the American title of the Quatermass Experiment. Oh. The combined program was a success at the box office uh, with a gross of $1.5 million. Nice. Contemporary reviews were kind, um, as while the story was found to be old-fashioned and corny and just a whole lot of nonsense, (laughs) uh, the movie was regarded as fun and appropriately grisly, with Rathbone's performance singled out for praise. Now, Lugosi died of a heart attack on August 16th, 1956, in his L.A. apartment. The Black Sleep was his final film, although Ed Wood would take his test footage that he shot and use it in the later film Plan 9 from Outer Space, filling Lugosi's part in using Wood's wife's chiropractor as a double. Lugosi was buried in his Dracula cape, though it was not a request he made, contrary to popular belief. It was a decision that his fourth wife, Lillian, and their son, Bella Jr., came to, believing that it's what he would have wanted. So today, The Black Sleep is available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Oh, Kino. And it is also streaming on Tubi. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Black Sleep from 1956, directed by Reginald LeBorg. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Black Sleep from 1956, directed by Reginald LeBorg. Sarah, what did you think? This movie is a lot of fun. This was good. Yep. Yep, this was good, actually. 
And it's not just good because it's the throwback situation. It's good in and of itself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, we can talk more about this later, but this was better than it needed to be. Yeah. So, the story is pretty familiar. Uh, covers a lot of familiar beats. But why don't we elucidate it anyways for those listeners who may not be familiar with those beats? <laughs> uh, Sarah? Well... We start off with Basil Rathbone giving us some voiceover narration, which is really just to say that there's a drug that produces a coma-like state where you appear as if you are dead. Um, your pulse is gone, everything. You don't feel any pain. Um, and Rathbone and his character, Dr. Cadman, terms this drug the black sleep. Brum, brum, brum. Next thing we know, we are in London in 1872, where Dr. Gordon Ramsay is going to be hanged. Uh, he has been convicted of the murder of a man named Curry, and Ramsay is like, I didn't do it, like, I'm innocent. Um, he does say, you know, we had some words, and I was knocked out at some point and woke up being fished out of the river and the police arresting me and all of their evidence is circumstantial um but I, i'm i'm innocent the night before he's going to be hanged uh his old colleague sir dr joel cadman visits him and introduces this drug the black sleep to ramsey and he's like you know take this before you are to walk up to the gallows and you won't feel a thing, they'll think you're dead, and I'll take custody of your body. So Ramsey does this, and he awakes at the tattoo parlor of a man named Udu. Cadman is also there, and Cadman explains, you know, you were dead, you're not to be hanged anymore, they, you're legally considered dead, which is great because I need an assistant for my surgeon work and you have the skills I'm looking for. So this will be perfect. Now Udu has also kind of shown himself to be a little bit of a um, character who dabbles in body snatching. If you recall our episode on the movie The Body Snatcher. Yeah, Udu, who's played by Akim Tamaroff, definitely has a very loose morality Mm -hmm. His name may be Udu, but he's definitely more of a quirk. Sure. Yeah, that's a good joke. His name is spelt Odo. Yeah. Yeah. So, with Ramsey as his new assistant, um, they head to Cadman's lab, which is an old castle. Of course. And at this castle, he meets the head nurse, Daphne who we, the audience, learn that she is in love with Cadman, and that's why she's here and doing anything. We meet Casimir, um, the mute servant, who is played by Bella Lugosi. We meet the assistant nurse, Lori, and we meet Lori as she is being attacked by Lon Chaney, who is known as Mungo at this point in time. Yeah. Who also does not have any lines. So, Dr. Cadman, we learn, is studying the brain through experiments, 
and has identified which part of the brain controls which function. We, along with Ramsey, learned that Cadman has done this experimenting on live people um, by drugging them with the black sleep. Vivisection. This experimentation is why Casimir is mute. And also, uh, Mungo used to be a Dr. Monroe. Um, and is also Laurie's father. So that's a whole, like, soap opera plot wrapped up in this. Yeah, he's he's also, like, Cadman's old colleague and Ramsey's old teacher. And it does... The big question I had about him coming away from this movie is why was he at any point called Mungo when Laurie knows who he is, Cadman knows who he is, Daphne knows who he is, and, like, yeah, Ramsey doesn't know at first, but then, like, they walk into the next room and Ramsey's like, wait a second, was that Professor Monroe? And Cadman's <laughs> not like, no, that's Mungo. Cadman's like, yeah, you're right. So, like, <laughs> you know who he is. Why do you all go around calling him Mungo? So, Mungo, Monroe, only listens to Daphne, and she calls him Mungo. So I feel like it's what she calls him, and because that's the only person he listens to, everyone else started calling him Mungo as well. Which is us, like... That begs the question, like, Daphne, how much of a bitch are you that you're calling this person who, like, has been experimented upon and lost, like, reason and faculty, Mungo, and not their actual name? It would it would almost help if Cheney had lines, because, like, the idea is supposed to be that Monroe came to Cadman because he was paralyzed on one side and was like, hey, you're doing brain stuff, can you brain me up an operation to fix me. And he was like, sure. And he did, and he did fix him, but he accidentally, like, you know, lobotomized him at the same time, basically. And now he's a big, grumpy, monstrous brute. Well, so he doesn't lobotomize him. He affected part of the brain that deals with reason. Um, and that's why he, uh, Monroe, goes on the attack. And specifically will only attack Lori. Now... There's two things here. One is that Cadman is like, oh yeah, I accidentally hit or like affected the part of the brain that um, controls reason. Except I don't buy it. Given his other experimentations, it seemed to me like he went in there to try to like fix the stroke, you know, paralyzation on the left side. But... Asa was like, well, I'm in here. Let's see what this does. Sure. That's what Lori suspects. And she kind of thinks Cadman's a bit of a monster. Um, but when Ramsey discovers all of these things, he decides to give Cadman, like, the benefit of the doubt. Like, you, you went in trying to do good and you made a mistake. <laughs> the thing I wanted to say about if Cheney had lines is, like, the name would make sense or something if, like, after being affected in this way... Um, and I just used the term lobotomized as like a, it's as if he has been, not that he literally was, but if after he's been affected in this way, if he was going around and they were like, can you remember your name? And he was like, Mungo, Mungo, you know, like that, like, it'd be like, okay, that makes sense. But as it is, yeah, it just kind of makes Daphne look like a bitch. Uh, they've got a real, um, Black Widow Hulk 
in Age of Ultron thing going on. Absolutely. Uh, now, the second thing that is with Monroe is, you know, Laurie tells Ramsey, yeah, he's my dad, this is what I suspect, all these things. And Ramsey has some armchair psychology going on because Laurie shares that uh, my mom died when I was born, I was my dad's whole life, and now he hates me and only attacks me. And Ramsey goes, well, it's probably because he blames you for the loss of your mom and somehow has planted the, like, your mom, his wife image onto Daphne, and that's why he listens to her. That's the first and last that we get of any kind of explanation for what Mongo Munro's whole deal is. Now, you might be wondering, like, what, why would Cadman do any of this? Now, we learn that it's because his wife, Angelina, just fully like, she's an angel, <laughs> uh, has a tumor deep in her brain. And this caused her to go into a coma. Um, and Cadman wants to operate to remove it, but because it's so deep in her brain, he's like, hey, I need to know how the brain works so I don't inadvertently cause some damage. It's a real Nora Freeze situation. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Also, Angelina is like 32 or 33. She's like a good 30 years younger than Basil Rathbone, like the character. Yeah. Which is like... Okay, guys. But Ramsey soon learns that the machinations go much further than just wanting to save Angelina, including Uru kidnapping patients and Curry, the man he was convicted of murdering, is not dead, but instead was a patient of Cadman's. Uh, he has gone blind, and um, basically the implication is that Ramsey was framed in order to get him into a position where um, he would have no choice but to be an assistant to Cadman. Yeah, it's like, if at the start of the movie you're going like, wow, this is a really convenient thing that's happened to Ramsey so that Cadman can do this whole black sleep, save you from the gallows, now you're my assistant thing. It's like, yeah, because he set it up. Yeah. Now, other victims slash patients that we meet include Carradine, who is looking like a Gandalf the Grey in this dungeon. Yeah, Carradine thinks he's like a knight in the Third Crusade uh, fighting Saladin. He keeps going on about, like... The Saracens having taken Jerusalem. We also see a woman who was experimented upon and she just like giggles and it's like everyone down here is like aggressive and wanting to attack. And due to whatever experimentation went on with this woman, she is now growing hair in patches all over her body. <laughs> yeah, she's like, she's got like... You know, she's sort of, like, half bald because she's got the, like, incision scars, and then she's got the patches of hair. But it's, like, this big reveal because they first meet her and she's got, like, a shawl on. And, he's and like, then she throws it off and, and like, <laughs> oh, my God. It, it's, it's, like, um, it's like a freak show down here. Yeah. Uh, and then we also meet um, a sailor who uh, 
Ramsey helped experiment on before he realized or learned that the sailor was actually still alive. And the experiment has gone terribly because the sailor is now very aggressive and also has a melty face. Yes. And, like, there's a whole thing here where a lot of these people are, you know, yes, Udu got them, but, like, are people where it's like, oh, well, this person saw us nab this other person, and, you know. And very much a, oh, no one will care if this person goes missing. Yeah. If this homeless person goes missing. Yeah. So when we get to the climax, Ramsey and Lori find these patients down in a dungeon. Um, Now, Ramsey and Lori are apprehended, I guess, by Cadman and everyone else. Um, But they drop the keys um, near where Curry is. Tor Johnson. Yes. Uru was supposed to bring a female patient, and he fucks up on purpose. It's a long story. Basically, he was covering his own ass, let the patient die uh, while under the black sleep. So in Catman's eyes, you failed. Fuck off. Um, But he needs a lady patient because this is the final experiment and Angelina is going to be involved. So Catman decides to use Lori. Now, all of these experiments happen way up in a tower because it's a horror movie. (laughs) Because they got the keys, the patient victims escape, head up the tower, and decide to murder whoever they find because Carradine's character thinks that they are storming Jerusalem and killing everyone in sight. Now, first they find Daphne. They beat her down and throw her on the giant fireplace, and she runs through the castle on fire. It's gruesome. Well, that's the last we see of Daphne. Then they come across Mungo Monroe and fight and choke him out and kill him. Just as that happens, Ramsey manages to free Lori from the operating table, and Cadman, carrying the comatose Angelina, comes in. Uh, and Carradine's like, ah, our main baddie, get him! It's a real Donald Glover entering with pizzas situation. Like, Cadman's got Angelina in his arms, and he, like, opens the door and comes inside and, like, turns around, and it's like, wait, what? So he's being chased while carrying Angelina, and he did not install railings in this tower of his, and slips and falls uh, to his and presumably Angelina's deaths. Now, the police uh, were here earlier trying to find Udu, and they come back just in time to arrest Udu, get the patient victims under control, and see that Cadman is dead. And hey, Tor Johnson, I mean Curry, is alive, so Ramsey, you're... You're free to go <laughs> with Lori into the sunset. The end. Yeah, man. This this is great, actually. Um, yeah, it's... um, I don't know if it comes off in the way that I did the plot summary, but this is a very tight script. Yes. Um, everything makes sense. Well, in the horror movie version of sense. Like, I, yeah. I understand why... 
we're going to this point to that point and you know from a to b to c everything connects everything that's set up pays off and i know why everyone is doing what they are doing mhm the script is also like really intelligent and well researched like cadman and ramsey talk like surgeons the way they talk about the brain sounds accurate it doesn't sound like a bunch of like bullshit mumbo jumbo yeah it's not like he's not talking about glands and shit like one of the things that i really appreciated was connecting what cabin was doing to real science like he he hooks someone's brain up to some electricity and for once it's not like some ridiculous strict fade and stuff it looks like a victorian generator and you know he makes the person's arm move or whatever and he's like this is how i'm figuring out what parts do what because I send a jolt to each part and it's like, Oh, it does that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Ramsey's like, Oh, well that's just fucking galvanism. My dude, that was done in like the 1760s. Like this is nothing. And he's like, no, 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 no. Yes, you're right. But Galvani was just doing shit with frogs. Like I've figured out how to make this dude dance, you know, like (laughs) not actually dance. No, but it's it's good dialogue, like mm-hmm. when Cadman's giving his speeches about why he's doing what he's doing. Like, he makes the same kind of, like, morality and science don't go together. Like, everything is justified in the pursuit of science kind of mad scientist speeches we've had before. But they don't feel cookie cutter. They feel like a person expressing their philosophies that are informed by the events that have happened in their lives. Yeah. It's just, uh, in the case of Cadman, he clearly values his wife's life over the lives of the people who he is experimenting on, which tend to be, like, very low-class, poverty-stricken sailors and homeless folk. Uh, so there's classism as, like, a way to, like, further explain why he is experimenting on these people more than just oh he's a mad scientist but he he's prejudiced well the thing that's smart here like okay so yes this is a throwback to 1940s style horror but unlike the universal movies of that period or other movies of that period which would adopt this kind of like uh vague it's kind of the past sort of setting so that they could have castles and and fog-drenched streets and and whatever, the Victorian setting here is actually put to really good use. Like, this is a great example of the way that this movie does kind of all the tropes, but justifies them and makes them logical. So, you know, Cadman gives his speech about how he values his wife over these other people. And, like, obviously that's wrong. But when he talks about, like, yeah, of course I would experiment on, like, a million dudes if I could get my wife back. It's like, I don't know, like, I feel like I would fight a dude to get you back if you had been, like, to, <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like, like if someone was like, sure. you can either see Sarah again or you'll have to kill me. Like, I don't know, like, it feels emotionally real. But then the point you raise about the classism, like, yeah, because he's a Victorian scientist. And they explicitly say he's a sir. He's been knighted for his scientific work. Right, so he's upper class. So, like, yeah, of course he's like, oh, yeah, you brought me a beggar woman off the street. Like, we're probably doing her a favor by killing her. Like, of course that's his attitude, right? 
And it's the same thing with his weird castle. Like, we get told, like, oh, yeah, this was a monastery back in the day. And the reason it has, like, crazy hidden passages and shit is because, like, it's on the coast. And it used to get raided by Vikings. So the monks would have these areas that they could retreat to. Like, they don't need to be going to this amount of work. But they are. And it never feels like they're, like, stopping the pacing. No. To then explain. And it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel like lampshading. Yeah. Dude really should have brought this place up to code, though. Like. <laughs> With the rails, you mean? Yeah, like, <laughs> cool, um, old monk's story, secret passageways, cool, whatever. Have some, like, fucking building codes up in here. So I think what we're trying to get across here is that even though this is a throwback to, you know, your old 1940s horrors, it's kind of way better than most of them. It absolutely is. And I think part of it is Rathbone being great. Mm-hmm. Um, the sets and the matte paintings being really, really good. Mm-hmm. Like, you can tell that, like, they spent money on this. But not, like, over-the-top amounts of money. Like, Yeah, like it's they not sp- like this is an A picture. No, they've spent a reasonable amount, right? Like, we're we're higher up in the budget range than, like, trying to pretend that, like, that cardboard wall and this, like, throwaway, you know, bit of metal are a mad scientist laboratory. But we're not going out of our way to do expensive shit for the sake of it either. Yeah. It's it's certainly better than an Ed Wood movie, you know, addressing that kind of point from earlier. Well, that's because it's not just a throwback. Like, it's making something really good that just happens to be in the style of something from 1940. Like, it has excellent mood setting. It's chilling in and of itself, um, both with, like, the sound effects of, like, when they're doing the brain surgery, (laughs) the choice of shots. Like, when Mungo Monroe is first coming at Laurie... Like, there is a shot where we're from Cheney's point of view with his arms outstretched going for her throat. Yeah. Like, that's just one example. So the crazy thing here is that not only is it better than something some guy like Ed Wood could do, this is better than what LeBorg himself was doing back in the day. Yeah, he's showing off his skills. I don't know, maybe part of it too is like... Because LeBorg, yes, he did a lot of these horror movies for Universal, but he was never doing the top-of-the-line ones. You know, he was doing Paula Dupree and Mummy movies, which were, like, the bottom tier compared to, the, like, the Frankenstein Wolfman movies, right? And I feel like this is him being like, what I could have done if they had given me the money at the <laughs> time, and the time, and the, the actors that I could have worked with, and... I think yes, but also, like you said, he's been doing, like, TV and westerns for, like, the past several years. And so now it's kind of like, cool, I'm coming back to my roots. Let's, Mm. like, really jazz it up. Yeah, the pacing here you already brought up is really good. Stuff actually happens at, like, regular intervals in the movie. Yeah. There are scares, there are thrills. The makeup is effectively grisly. Yeah, like, in the case of Tor Johnson, really the only thing with him is his eyes. They, in doing the brain surgery, basically turned him blind, and it's shocking when his eyes open and they're, like, just glowing white. Like, uh, that dude in that first episode of Star Trek. (laughs) Right. He looks great. 
The guy with the melty face looks great. The brain, when they've got his skull oh. open and they're operating on it while he's still alive and the skull's there and the cerebral fluid is leaking out of his head. And, and... it's pulsing. Yeah. Um, though I have to say, so Ramsey pronounced cerebral as cerebral. Yes. The cerebral fluid. Yes. You know, like Cerebus. <laughs> Yeah, the situations in the movie are suitably horrific. Like, you feel it when everything closes in on Laurie and she's getting, like, dragged away to go be a victim. Rathbone is 100% the cast MVP here. Yes. Um, he looks so much like Sidney Paget's illustrations of Sherlock Holmes that I was like, oh, I see. I see why this has happened to you, Rathbone. <laughs> but he's so good, like... The script is good, but he's also elevating it. Absolutely. Um, though I will say that's because he's given the opportunity to. Mm -hmm. Like, it's unfortunate that Lugosi doesn't really do anything beyond being a servant. He He tries to do some things when he's on screen, like reacting to where sound effects would come in. And stuff, and so he's trying, but Lugosi, Cheney, and Carradine aren't really given the opportunity to do anything. Yeah, so this is the big disappointment with this movie, right? Like, Rathbone's great. Herbert Rudley and Patricia Blake, who play Ramsey and Lori, are way better than they need to be. Yeah. Um, better than it needs to be is probably the slogan for this whole movie. But of the other big-name horror people here, it's very disappointing. As you mentioned, Lugosi has nothing to do. He's, he's basically wasted, right? Like, yes, he's mute, but he's also, like, his character is basically a non-entity. He's so old and thin and sad here. Like, the, the emotion that he engenders here is pity, more than anything else for me. Casimir's whole issue could easily have been changed from mute to something else, right? All that matters is that the doctor is experimenting on people. They could have made it like he has a limp, he has a gimped arm, he has whatever, and let Lugosi talk. Um, but the character doesn't even really do anything in the movie either. Like, yeah, he's the butler, but like, he just sort of shuffles around in the backgrounds of scenes and follows some orders. Like, yeah, he opens some doors for people here and there. It could have been a non-speaking part played by a nobody extra. Yeah. Um, it honestly kind of feels like a part given to Lugosi as, like, a handout. Yeah. Which is why, like, it's so disappointing that it's, you know, his last movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. When... I, I would assume that, you know, when he's coming out of rehab and then he gets this movie offer right away, he might have thought that, oh, great, my big comeback. Mm -hmm. And that might be why he was so sad behind the scenes, as you kind of described in the context setting, because this is not no. that no. at all. Um, and he knows that you need to, like, seize every opportunity, because I think Lugosi knows more than most that, like, one movie can make or break you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of these roles, the role that was written for Peter Lorre you can tell, was written for Peter Lorre. Yes. Um, but Akim Tamaroff makes it his own, and he does a really good job at it. Yeah, he's he's great, because Akim Tamaroff's a great character actor. Yeah. 
As for the other big horror names, like, Chaney's doing the hulking but sad brute thing that he's done a million times. Uh, But I feel like, again, just like Lugosi, he's not being given enough to do. He's not being utilized well enough. We could have been given more of a sense of his past identity, you know, through a flashback or through him becoming lucid again for some moment or whatever and giving him some dialogue to give him some more pathos, right? Because, like... Yeah, like, if he had realized, like, oh, Laurie, my daughter, mm-hmm. right at the end before he's murdered by the patients... Yeah. That would have been really cool. Yeah, his story has a lot of pathos, but Cheney isn't given a lot of it to play, which is unfortunate because we know that's something he can play very well. And he does, like do really good facial expressions oh, yeah. here. Uh, so you can tell he's he's trying to do as much as he can with what he's been given. Exactly. Carradine and Tor Johnson are also underused, but I will say that in their case... So Carradine is having a great fucking time here. Yeah. Obviously. Like, he has been let off the leash to go as big and crazy as he wants to, And, you know, Tor Johnson, on the other hand, like, he's just doing the Tor Johnson thing, where don't talk. Be big and brutish. And and break some shit, right? Yeah. Also, Um, you're blind in this one. Right. Um, The issue with them is more just that, like, we don't get them until, like, the very, very end of the movie. And while I agree that the pacing is good, if there's a place where it falls apart a little bit, it's the ending. The climax is a little rushed. Yeah. Everything is just kind of happening at once. We could have gotten a lot better. Like, there's so many of these patients, instead of having them in this, like, clump, especially because they're all really, like, unique and different, like, they should have, like, gotten loose through the whole thing and, like, been hunting down people individually. And, you know, here's where we get Daphne, and here's where we get Cadman, and here's where we get, you know, whatever, and threaten Laurie and, and Ramsey and et cetera, et cetera, right? But, yeah, it all just kind of happens and then the movie's over, which is the final thing that it's throwing back to for the Universal Monster movies is just ending when it's over. Yep. Well, in this case, also the police arrived and, you know, they've cleaned things up. We're, We're good. Yeah, I do love that, like, you know, the police are tracking down Udu and they come to Cadman and they're like, hey... You know this dude? And he's like, yeah, he's gone, though. And they're like, ah, cool, thanks. And then, like, it's after everything else has, like, fallen apart. And, like, Lori and Gordon come through, like, a trap door or whatever. And the police are, like, there. And they've got Udu arrested. And they're like, yeah, we, we came back to ask Cadman something else. And we just came across all of this. So I just kind of imagine this, like, Scotland Yard dude, like, pulling a Columbo and being like, ah, one more thing. Except when he turns around, there's a bunch of monsters running around and people getting, you know, on fire. And it's like, oh, good thing I turned around. Yeah, I I just have to say this is a very good movie. Like, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that our other horror stories don't really get much to do. But in structuring it like that, it does keep the script pretty tight. Mm-hmm. It keeps us focused on just Ramsey and Cadman with a little bit of Laurie thrown in. Um, and Laurie has a fantastic screen. So, yeah, very good all around. Yeah, this is a good movie. Let's move on to ranking. So, Sarah, I I had a bit of a hard time finding my range for this one. Okay. Um, because it's very akin to a lot of movies around the midpoint of the list. I started by looking for another movie about a mad scientist trying to save 
his wife in a weird way and found the corpse vanishes at number 97. I was also thinking about corpse vanishes through this. Looking around that movie, though, I was like, okay, I think this is probably better than a lot of these. So I started kind of like scrolling up, scrolling up, scrolling up. And where I sort of stopped was another movie where Bela Lugosi's a guy with a weird, not-quite-dead wife, Invisible Ghost, at 73, 20 spots higher. Because what stopped me was White Zombie, immediately above that, and I was like, is this better than White Zombie? I don't know. But I think it's better than Invisible Ghost. Looking above that, we get into some really good movies. Um, Phantom of the Convent, Fall of the House of Usher. But then above those movies, there's like, House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which, like, feels similar to this movie, and I think this movie might be better than. So I kept going up, and where I stopped was number 54, The Black Room, which, like this movie, is very smart and very well put together. And unlike this movie, even though Rathbone's good in this, I think The Black Room has something this movie doesn't have, which is a standout performance from Boris Karloff. They can just say Boris Karloff. They don't have Boris Karloff in this. Yeah. So my ceiling is number 55, below the black room. My floor is number 73, below White Zombie. Well, that's quite a range. Yes, I know. I Like I said, I had trouble. My range is nowhere near yours. Oh, no! Where I was first drawn was Return of the Vampire. Okay. Which is at number 25. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was drawn here because of the, you know, throwback nature of that movie. You know, Bela Lugosi's doing a a no-name brand Dracula. Um, So that's kind of why I was drawn here. But I ultimately decided, no, this is just a bit too high. The Black Sleep doesn't really fit here. Yeah. So then I started looking my way down, and I got caught by Frog Boy at the maze. That happens to me a lot, too. (laughs) It's those webby hands of his. Yes, the maze is gothic and good and has some chilling moments, but the chilling moments in The Black Sleep are way more consistent. The makeup is really, really good here, and I, I think The Black Sleep is better. So my floor is 41, and then looking up, I did not feel comfortable going above Mad Love at 31. Um, Mad Love is really striking, uh, with its, like, German Expressionist surrealist sets. It kind of loses its way a little bit because it's adapting a very convoluted detective novel, um... But, like, it's still pretty good. And I was like, okay, between Peter Laurie as a surgeon and Rathbone as a surgeon, I feel like we could compare these two. So my range is 31 to 41. So I think the next step is to find the middle point between my floor and your ceiling. Which is the man who changed his mind at number 47. (laughs) I'll I'll never get over that title. That is just so choice. Looking around there... We've got movies like the Spencer Tracy Jekyll and Hyde right below there. We've got the Leopard Man right above there. And looking in this area, we also have The Creature Walks Among Us right above the Leopard Man, which we just saw the other day. 
I don't know about you. We really liked Creature Walks Among Us last week. I don't know about you, but I like this better. I agree. I think it's more cohesive. It's it's also stronger as a horror movie. Yes, absolutely. Because we identified Creature Walks Among Us as like shifting, Doppler shifting <laughs> more into sci-fi, right? Yeah. But above that is dementia. And dementia is mm. such a nightmare. And it's so clearly coming from some deep-rooted, you know, Freudian place within someone. Because of that... And it's sort of artistic... Point of view? Ambitions. Yeah. Um, I kind of feel like the spot for the Black Sleep is below dementia, above Creature Walks Among Us. What do you think about um, the men with no face and the Black Sleep? As smart as the Black Sleep is, the Black Sleep is being very smart about telling a mad scientist brain experiment castle movie with monsters in the basement and shit. Whereas the man with no face is doing a lot of interesting like psychological thriller horror stuff that's all super fucking obvious to us in 2020 but felt completely new and different uh, in 1950. Yeah, and I think you have to give credit to people doing something completely new and different, even though, like, these people doing doing the black sleep are purposefully doing, like, a throwback, and there's a lot of joy and talent shown here. Um, I think you do have to give credit to people kind of pushing the envelope. For sure. And I feel that way about dementia as well. So, yeah, I'm good with uh, this proposal of yours. Awesome. Yeah, the black sleep... Being a throwback, but being better than the things it's throwing back to, sort of is like Star Wars in the way that, like, Star Wars is trying to be Flash Gordon, but is actually much better than Flash Gordon ever was. (laughs) So entering the list at the new number 45 is The Black Sleep from 1956, directed by Reginald LeBorg. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us on whichever podcasting app you like to use. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review, or you can tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. As we mentioned at the top of the show, if you have the means and want to help support the show financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Just like Kyle and Dave versus the machine. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to bonus content, um, and the money we get from Patreon helps pay our hosting fee, and is slowly getting us closer to our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, at which point we will start doing bonus episodes once a month on horror-adjacent films. If you join up to the Patreon, you'll get 
to have access to a sort of preview. Po- a, yeah, a preview of what that'll look like. Uh, because we have a episode on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein currently up to listen. Yeah, watching that where you see Lugosi and Cheney in their element and then coming to see them in the black sleep is a little bit of a whiplash situation. Well, yeah, especially because Lugosi is past his prime in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Like you're like, oh, he's gotten kind of fat and he's gotten kind of old. And then you see him here where he weighs like 50 pounds and like just hair white and everything. And it's like, oh, oh no, this is worse actually. Yeah. Anyways, that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. See what fun awaits you there? Uh, What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we're watching an indie horror movie that I don't really know much about. Okay. I do know the title. It's The Werewolf, and I can tell you that based on the poster, it does appear to at least be a real werewolf movie. No, no, you can't trust movie posters, Ben. (laughs) We have learned this. It's false advertising, at best. Well, here's to there being a werewolf in next week's movie, Sarah. See you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.